that we can have some fun and enjoy life. I mean, if we can't enjoy life, who can? Uh, we know who you are. We know what you have done for us. We have great confidence that the everlasting arms are underneath us and sustaining us as we go through life. Uh, life's not always light. Life is not always fun. It's hard. It's difficult. And uh, all kidding aside, there probably are some guys here tonight that are hurting, and they're hurting deeply. That's just because life is, uh, life is not a, a merry-go-round. It is hard, and it is serious, and it's difficult. Uh, sin is rampant. And where there's sin, there's death. We're all broken people. We're all flawed people. That's why we come to you, and that's why we need you. We are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for the fact that you are a God that is in absolute control over everything. That's really been what we've been focusing on here over the last few months. If that were not true, um, well, it just... We'd be cooked. We'd be in trouble. But it is true. So we've been looking at this truth, and we've been focusing on it, and looking at it from the various angles that you present it uh, to us in Scripture. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that this will make us stronger, that in times of difficulty, in times of hardship, in times of confusion, when we don't know what the heck is going on, that we will lean on your providence and on your word. This is meant to uh, strengthen us and underscore us and give us a foundation. That when the storms hit, uh, we've built upon the rock. And we're not going anywhere. Not, not because of us, but because of you. So as we wrap this up tonight, encourage us. Put the final touches on this study on providence, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't been with us, we have been looking at the life of Joseph uh, over a number of weeks and looking at the providence of God in the life of Joseph. The providence of God, and I'm going to go over this real quick. The providence of God is one of the forgotten doctrines of this century. The providence of God simply means that which God creates, God sustains. That which God creates, God provides for. Um, Scriptures say to us, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What God starts, God finishes. God has a work for each guy in this room to do. We're not the same. We have different gifts. We have different skills. We have different assignments. We think the guys, uh, we, we think the visible guys, the guys that are up front, Oh, yeah, they got an assignment. No, everybody's got an assignment because God's running the whole show. He assigns us to our different posts, gives us different skills, different gifts. All the assignments are critical. All of the assignments are important. We're to do our work to the glory of God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as, not as a result of works that any man should boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created beforehand, before any of us were ever born, that we might walk in them. So before you were born, God determined, and we know this from Psalm 139, God determined the moment of your conception he can determine the moment of your determine the moment of your birth. He's already determined the moment of our deaths. Every guy in here, the moment of your death has been set. It's in concrete. It's not karma. It's not luck. It's set by Almighty God. Hebrews says it is appointed for a man once to die. Now, in between your conception and your birth and your death. What is going to sustain you in order to do the work that God has called you to do is the providence of God. He will give you what you need at the precise moment 
when you need it. A lot of times we want him to give us what we need um, a couple of months before we need it, or a couple of weeks before we need it, or a couple of days before we need it. God is notorious for giving us what we need at the exact last moment. Why? Because you don't need it till the last moment. We're into, um, we're into big surpluses, into big savings accounts, um, big net worths. You read Hebrews 11, um, God's in the faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith. Um, so what God does from time to time in our lives is that God takes things away that we don't want him to take away. Uh, legitimate things that other people have. Nothing wrong with having these things, but God will take things away from us that we really like to have because what happens is we start trusting in the things instead of him. So he'll remove them from us. And therefore, when God removes your, uh, all your retirement and all your pension and they're just gone, um, well, now you're going to walk by faith. Nobody wants to have that happen, but it happens to some people. Um, by the way, if that happens to you, will you make it? Will every need that you have be supplied? Well, we certainly hope so. Don't we? Actually, it's a little better than that. The answer is yes. Everything you need. And the old hymn says, All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. That's the providence of God. So we did Joseph. And then we move from Joseph to fish. You say, What's the correlation? I have no idea, except this. There are places in the scripture where we have accounts where fish are involved. And wherever you see fish in the scripture, you see the providence of God. Uh, wherever you see the providence of God, you see the power of God. You see, that which he creates, he sustains. That which he creates, he provides for. So the first one we looked at, was the prophet and the fish, which was Jonah. Really an unbelievable story. Actually, a believable story. Uh, people all oh, great But if the New York Times said that some 60-foot sperm whale swallowed a guy and he lived for three days, the liberals would believe it. They'd have no problem with it. But the problem is, the scriptures say it. I had a professor in seminary. We were talking about Noah's Ark, you know, and it's up there somewhere in Turkey. And I mean, they know it's there. They've cited it historically. And, you know, these guys are talking, oh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't there, you know, it'd be such an evangelism tool. And he said, listen, let me tell you something. If they found Noah's Ark with his initials on the steering wheel, <laughs> they wouldn't believe it. Because they don't want to believe it. Hard hearts. So Jonah, the fish, in the providence of God, they throw him in. First of all, God causes the storm. Uh, they throw him in. The storm immediately ceases. The fish is there at his assigned post. Swallows him. Three days. At the end of three days, uh, providence of God brings on acid reflux. Probably the largest case in history. <laughs> he vomits up Joseph. Uh, what's his name? Jonah. Doesn't swallow him. He vomits him, vomits him up. It's providence of God. Then we talked about... Um, the fishermen and the fish. Peter's with the other guys. They're fishing all night. They're cleaning their nets. Didn't catch a cotton-picking thing. Jesus says to them, throw your net on the other side. About, in other words, Peter, I know you've been fishing all night. Right? Throw your feet on the other side about four feet away. There's so many fish, the nets can't hold it. That's the providence of God because God put boundaries on the fish. Said so you can go this far. It was like he put a glass wall in an aquarium. They were here. They couldn't go here, 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 or here. They were here. That's the providence of God. Then we did um, the loaves and fishes. 
which is a remarkable thing. And those fish, those fish just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Uh, the widow at Zarephath was instructed, you know, when Elijah took on, uh, I always want to say Bill and Hillary, when he took on uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Sorry about that. <clears throat> but there are so many parallels. And there are. And there are. And um, if that offends you, you ought to go read about that. If that offends you, you're liking the wrong people. Anyway, isn't this our last night? For a while. For a while, yeah. Might be my last night permanently. Anyway, um, Elijah takes them on. They're Baal worshipers. They believe that Baal controlled the environment. He comes up, shows up for the first time. He says, it's not going to rain for three and a half years until Yahweh says it's going to rain. They trusted in Baal. He's going to show them who runs the environment. So it didn't rain for three and a half years. So he's got to hide himself, and he goes to the brook, and God uses ravens to, to provide for him. Ravens are notorious for not even feeding their own little birds. So God uses ravens, goes against their nature, has them provide food for um, Elijah. And then the brook runs dry. Oftentimes the, the provision that God gives us will dry up. So now there's going to have to be more provision. We get worried because now that provision we got comfortable with, now it's gone. What are we going to do now? Well, you're going to rely on the same God, aren't you? Just a different source. So God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. Zarephath was up in really bad country. It was Jezebel's home territory. It was full of Baal worshipers. He says, go up there. I've commanded a widow to take care of you. He gets up there, sees the widow. He says, uh, uh, hey, can you make me a little cake and, you know... Uh, and she said, well, I'm just making this for my son, and then we're going to eat that, and then we're going to die, because that's all we have. A lot of times, the, the provision God supplies, it can really kind of throw you off. You, you would have thought this widow would have had her own foundation and been a philanthropist and, you know, had oil and gas leases for the next 3,000 years. But he got up there, and this woman who has been commanded to provide, she says, well, we've got enough to eat, and then we're going to die. And he said, well, why don't you go ahead and give me what you were going to eat? And she did. And because she did, uh, the flour, which she had, she was told, will never run out, nor will the oil. Uh, they didn't pull up 18-wheeler uh, semis, tanker trucks, and, you know, start putting olive oil in the ground in tanks. God doesn't do that. But when she would go to take oil out, to prepare and take some flour out, uh, the levels would be exactly the same. So see, you see the provision of God. Um, God can do it a whole bunch of different ways. A whole bunch of different ways. Um, you fish all night here, there's nothing there. He says, go here, and you obey him. With God, the difference between success and failure can be about four feet. That's what the story of uh, Peter tells us. Loaves and fishes, he just kept multiplying. Just kept multiplying. Because he's God, because he has power over everything. Tonight, we're going to take a little different course. I was talking to some guys at dinner, and I said, well, we're trying to figure out. We try, we, when you said you were going to do fish, we could kind of figure out where you're going, but tonight we're not clear where you're going. Well, tonight we're going to do something a little different. This is, this is kind of interesting on fish. I'll begin with a story about George Whitfield, who was the great preacher in the Great Awakening. George Whitfield was uh, traveling from one town to another with a friend. They were on horseback. And uh, suddenly out of the bushes came a bandit with, uh, with a pistol. Just came out of nowhere and held him up. Give me your wallets. So they handed over their wallets, and uh, the guy takes off. And, you know, they're just assimilating this, and they head on their journey, and they're just glad they didn't get shot. And uh, the next thing they know, they hear this gallop, and they turn, and the guy's right on them, right on them again. And, I mean, it just took them by surprise. They, they didn't even try to get away. And he looked at Whitfield, and he said, your coat is nicer than mine. Give me your coat. 
you can have this one. So Whitfield took off his coat. The guy took off his coat. They switched coats. And once again, they said, man, this is, this is crazy. And they're heading into town. About 20 minutes later, they hear a gallop. And this time, they just take off. And uh, they outran the guy in the town. And they got to where they were staying. They got to the inn. And they're just saying, wasn't this crazy and nuts? And we're grateful we didn't get shot. And later that evening, Whitfield was taking off the coat. And he felt something inside. And there was this wallet just full of money, much more money than had been taken from him. Um, and he had a work that he did in Georgia, in America, with orphans. So all of that extra money that was sorely needed at that time, he immediately sent to Georgia. All I have needed, thy hand, hath provided. But is not God creative? He is creative. I'm so creative, I'm not going to say anything about that noise. Isn't that amazing, though? See, a lot of times things happen. Oh, man, I was robbed. I was robbed. And then, oh, no, they took my coat. See? How many times have we seen now the providence of God? Things happen which we think are detrimental. But in actuality, they're going to be used for our good. When you lose something, nobody likes to lose things. Nobody. Although we'd like to lose that. <laughs> nobody likes to lose things. Sometimes we do. Sometimes things are taken away. Sometimes our money is taken away. Sometimes our uh, coats are taken away. Sometimes our net worth is taken away. Sometimes our health is taken away. Sometimes a spouse is taken away. Um, and, and when that happens, what do you do? A lot of times when things that are important to us are taken away, you know what happens to us? We kind of enter into kind of a desert experience. Uh, we've talked in here about depression. Uh, depression hits guys. Usually when depression hits a man, this is not always true, um, depression can come from physical reasons physiological reasons, chemical imbalance, that type of thing. You know, women are more susceptible to that than we are because of how God has put them together. But uh, usually for us, depression for, for a man comes from loss. We lose something. You lose a job. Uh, you lose respect. You lose your health. You lose something. And so we're depressed. And oftentimes we'll call these depressions, man, that's a, that's a desert experience. And it is a desert experience. Uh, in the providence of God, desert experiences are part of how God works. Now, I'm going to kind of go, I'm going to go the long way to get to this tonight. So you're going to have to follow me. Um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, if you would, please. There, there, there are different kinds of deserts. You know, Moses lived in a desert for 40 years. Uh, Moses had that middle period of his life that was just, nothing was happening, he wasn't productive, he wasn't uh, excited, he was bored, he was not challenged, he wasn't using his gifts. He lived 120 years. The first 40 years were significant in Egypt, in the household of Pharaoh. The next 40 years, he ran for his life, and he felt like his life was over. But it was the third 40 years that he could not envision that God was going to use him to do a great work to lead the people out of bondage. Uh, he was in a desert. There are deserts of depression. There are deserts of sickness. There are deserts of grief. You lose a spouse. You lose a child. You can't speed up that grief process. You can't get in a microwave and make that go away in three days. You just can't do it. There are deserts of broken dreams. There are deserts of temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, something very interesting. Jesus is entering the desert for the distinct purpose of being tempted. Sometimes we get into the desert because we've lost something. 
Other times, we find ourselves in the desert after a great victory or a great achievement or a great accomplishment. It's interesting how that happens in life. Matthew 3 is a great achievement. It's a great high point in the life of Christ. Uh, John the Baptist is baptizing and preaching in John or Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. John tried to pray. Jesus came to you and said, would you baptize me? How would you feel? John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's what you call a great moment. And by the way, some people say the Trinity isn't in the Bible. Who's the Trinity? You got the Father, you got the Son, and you got the Spirit. What a great moment. The Father, voice coming out of heaven. A dove, the Spirit, descending on him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Boy, you talk about, that's the pinnacle. But see, sometimes when you're at the pinnacle, you're about to enter the desert. And the next verse is the desert. Then Jesus was led up, catch this, by the Spirit, into the wilderness or into the desert. Because that wilderness that he was led into is desert. Uh, Chuck's over there right now in Israel with, I believe he said, 600 people on seven, in 17 buses. And uh, so they're going to they're gonna be in this section. They're going to be in this area. Uh, this wilderness is probably referring to just outside of, of Jericho, just to the uh, east of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up high. You're going down the slope of the mountain into the Jordan Valley. It's wilderness. Now, today it's irrigated. Back then, it was just wilderness and desert. He was led into the wilderness for what purpose? To be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And we know the story of how the tempter came to him. This was, there are guys, there are, and my purpose tonight is not to go through all this, except to say this. When Jesus was tempted, every time he was tempted, he held up the word of God. Satan would, would even quote scripture incorrectly. So, but, but Jesus would respond to temptation by the word of God. There are deserts of temptation in our lives. So what do we hold on to? We hold on to the word of God. When we're tempted, we answer with scripture. So you have trouble with pornography, and this thing has gotten a hold of you, what do you do? You've got to put scripture into your mind and into your heart. You, 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 you have got to reprogram yourself. It's Romans 12. Um, don't be conformed to this world, but be Transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By putting the word of God in your heart. Psalm 119, thy word I have hid in my heart. And when the scripture is speaking about heart, it's talking about you, the center. That's everything. It's your mind, your will, emotions. It's you. You go to a funeral and, and there's an open casket. Maybe you knew that person very well. And you look, and, and they're not there, are they? They're not there. That's a shell. You know what I'm talking about. Why? Because they're gone. Uh, that's not them. Thy word I have hid in my heart. My word, thy word I have hid in my mind that I may not sin against thee. You fight with the word of God. So there are times when, when we will be in the desert and it will be a desert. Um, it will be a desert of temptation. Now, now, okay. This is all, I'm setting all this up for providence. This particular place, have you got a map 
the back of your Bible? Sure you do. They got all these maps back here. And you know, there's a reason they put maps in the Bible. We're men, we never look at maps. We don't need maps. But maps can be a really good thing. So if you look back at the map, um, you know, you find one there of Israel, and you'll see Jerusalem, and sort of to the east, a little bit northeast, you'll see Jericho. And really due east of Jerusalem, remember you're dropping here several thousand feet into the Jordan Valley, you'll see the Dead Sea. Now, <clears throat> tonight, what I want to do here, as we've set this up, um, in the providence of God, in the providence of God, and we've already said this, God determined the moment of your conception, he determined the moment of your birth, he's determined the moment of your death. When we die, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to go to hell for eternity, or you will be with Christ forever in heaven. The way you qualify for heaven is realizing you're not qualified for heaven and that you trust in Jesus alone. You don't trust in Jesus plus candles. You don't trust in Jesus plus giving more money. You don't trust in Jesus plus this or that or your grandpa was a preacher or it's Jesus, it's Jesus, he's the Savior. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus is the one who paid for your sin and mine. He, he was buried three days later. He came out of the tomb. He conquered death. John Owen, 300 years ago, wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Did you get that? When Jesus went to the cross, you know what Jesus did? By his death, he killed death. That's why he said before he brought Lazarus out of the tomb, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he, anybody know? Live. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we trust in Christ alone. Okay. Um, one day, one day the Lord is going uh, to come back. And we're not going to get out all of our charts and go all through all this tonight. But what I want to show you is this. In the providence of God, God is going to do something that is very, very remarkable. Uh, this is the beauty of, if you get a chance, of going to Israel. Because you see in Israel, you see where things have already happened. And you see when you go to Israel where things are going to happen. Now, there's something that's going to happen in regard to fish that's very unique. Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Zechariah 14. I know you were just there this morning at breakfast. So I'm not sure where that is. Well, if you can find Matthew, keep going to your left, and you'll see Malachi the Italian prophet, actually Malachi, and you get right past Malachi, and guess what you're going to run into? You're going to run into Zechariah, not Zephaniah, Zechariah, okay? If you note Zechariah 14, and it talks about something that's going to happen uh, on the earth, and if you look at... Um, how far do I want to take this? Look, let's just look at uh, Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. 
You can go stand on the Mount of Olives today. There's a Lutheran hospital right there. But the Lord's going to come back. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, which it is. When you're there at the Mount of Olives, um, and I described this the other day, but the Mount of Olives is this pretty sharp hill. And then as you go down the Mount of Olives, there's um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And then you come right up the slope, and there's Jerusalem. But, um, and it's not that far. You can walk it in about 15, 20 minutes. So the Lord's going to be at the Mount of Olives where the Lutheran Hospital is. And here's what's going to happen. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. I remember being at the Mount of Olives and reading this and thinking, and just, I'm just, you know, I'm just, this is wild. This is really wild. What's going to happen? Uh, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Uh, let's go down to verse 6. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. Now what's this talking about? Is this talking about heaven? Is this talking about, what's it talking about? It's talking about over there in Israel, in Jerusalem. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Now catch this. And in that day, this is a future day when the Lord returns. And again, we're not filling in all the uh, eschatological blanks here. This isn't our purpose tonight. Um, in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea. Well, if you look, did you look at that map? What is the sea just east of Jerusalem? The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea contains six more salt, six times more salt than any other body of water on the face of the earth. There's so much salt and there's so many minerals in the Dead Sea. And this is what the fun thing about going to the Dead Sea is that you go to the Dead Sea and everybody goes for a swim. But you can't swim. Everybody goes for a float. Because you can't go under and stay under. It just holds you up, and it's just kind of fun because you just, you're just kind of standing there, and you just go back, and I mean, you don't even go under it, because the sucker's dead. It's just full of salt, minerals, and all this stuff. Okay, all right, now catch this. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, which is dead as a doornail, in the middle of this wilderness, which is just south of where Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4. Okay? We're putting this together now? That's a wilderness. It's a desert. If you go there now, there's nothing there. Zippo. It's just, uh, it's a good thing they went in May. It's going to be hot there right now. July is unbearable. July can get up to 130 degrees at the Dead Sea. And it stretches down... You know, from Jericho on south, it's just desert, it's just brown, it's nothing. Okay. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, and the other half towards the western sea. Now, what would be the western sea? Mediterranean, which is not that far from Jerusalem. I mean, you could be at the Mediterranean about, what, an hour and a half? Easy from Jerusalem. Uh, it will be in summer as well as in winter. What will be? That, now catch this, not waters will flow out, living waters. Go to Ezekiel 47. Keep going left. Now this is something that's going to happen in the future. Okay? Now follow this closely. This is going to describe to us in more detail the living waters that were described in Zechariah. Okay. I'm just checking my notes. That's why I'm delaying because uh, there's a basketball game. <laughs> All right. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, the house is the temple. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house 
towards the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. Talking about the temple, okay? So water's coming up. It's like an artesian well. It's just coming up out of the temple. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. This is the gate, again, in, if you, these guys with Chuck on the tour, they'll get to Jerusalem and you'll see the old walled city and they have all these gates. And they're all open except for one, which is the eastern gate, which faces the Mount of Olives. And the uh, uh, eastern gate is sealed up. The Muslims sealed it up, I don't know how many hundred years ago. Because they were told that Jesus was going to come in through the eastern gate, and they decided they'd keep him out. So they bricked it up. And then they put a graveyard in front of it because they were told that a, uh, a Jewish high priest would not ever you know, deal with dead bodies. So to keep Jesus out from going through the eastern gate, they bricked it up and they put a cemetery in front. Like that's going to be a problem for him, you see. Isn't that something? That's why it's so much fun to go over there. You just look and you go. Okay. Where am I at? I'm in Ezekiel 47, verse 2. Did I not make that clear? I'm sorry. I got it. You got it? Those guys back there have ADD. That's what it is. First one, back when we were born, we didn't even know about ADD. That's right. Okay. All right, here we go. Now look at this, and behold, at the end of two, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out towards the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water. The water was reaching the ankles. So you got this trickle of water coming out. But they go a thousand cubits, just a trickle. You go a thousand cubits, and the water is now up to the ankle. Now follow this, Okay. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water now reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. This is a water flowing out from the temple one day in Jerusalem. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of this river which isn't there now, but one day will be. Half of it goes east, half of it goes west. And what kind of water is in this river? Living water. Now catch this. Now, when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out towards the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go towards the sea. Now catch this. What sea? No, this is going, this is going um, east. This is the Dead Sea. Okay, that's right. If it was west, it would be Mediterranean. Then they go towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. That's wild. The deadest sea on the face of the earth will become full of fresh living water. You say, oh, that's interesting. But we haven't got there yet. Look at this. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And here we go now. There will be very many fish. There are no fish there now. now this, is a, this may not seem like a big deal to you. But here you got this river flowing out. It's a trickle. Right, it starts with a trickle. Now, do you see, you see salmon coming out of that sucker? You see steelhead? I mean, you see marlin? I mean, you, no. It's just a trickle. But it gets increasing, increasing, increasing. You got this river, and this sucker keeps flowing, and now you got it teeming with fish. All right, the river's not there now. The fish isn't there. How's the river going to get there, and how are the fish going to get there? Uh, Israeli game and uh, fishing game going to bring them in, truck them in, and stock the sucker? What's going to happen? 
He's going to create this. In his providency, he's going to create this. This is what's known as the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Now stay with me here. This is, this is really wild. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from in Gedi to Iniglim, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets. The fish will be according to their kinds. Now catch this. Like the fish of the great sea, very many. That is an amazing thing. This dead sea is going to be teamed. From Inaglime, which we believe to be on the north of the Dead Sea, down to the middle, which is in Getty, it's going to be one just great old time. Guys out there just... Picking these suck. I mean, it's going to be teeming with fish. Now, how do you do that? And then it says, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. So God is going to bring boundaries so that the Dead Sea, most of it is going to be living water, but the marshes are still going to be salt. By the river on its bank, verse 12, on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Now catch this about these trees. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. That's pretty wild stuff. Now, how do we know this is going to happen? Because of the providence of God. The providence of God, that which creates, God sustains. That which creates, God provides for. In order to be a God of providence, you have to be a God of all power. You have to be a God who has the ability to create. And this is what's going to be happening. We will be there as a part of this. Now, you say, well, now how does all this fit? You know, isn't this the millennium and all this? Um, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. Let me just give you a couple shots on this. Because, again, we're not doing a whole series here on, on, on prophecy and end times. I'm just giving you some tidbits, Okay. But, but I'm, what I'm trying to show you, trees that bear fruit every month. And then what did it say about these trees? Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because what feeds them is the water that flows out of the sanctuary. What kind of water? Living water. Uh, Alcorn. This is a great book. Heaven. When and, uh, where and when will our deliverance come? Um, I'll just jump in here. Under the question of the millennium. Some of you guys have studied this. Some of you, it's new too. Just follow me. Many have reduced the coming reign of Christ on earth to a thousand-year millennial kingdom on the old earth. You read the scripture, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. There's going to be a new Jerusalem that comes down. Okay. Consequently, they have failed to understand the biblical promise, now catch this, of an eternal reign on the new earth. Okay? Um, then he talks about the different views of the millennium. Um, and there are a bunch of different views on the millennium. Um, we would hold to a thousand-year literal millennium on the earth. Christ will be here, all this, okay. All right, now stay with me here. Uh, then you got your all millennialists who believe that it's just a figurative millennium, it really doesn't happen. You got your post millennialists, those guys kind of died out after World War I because they thought the world was getting better and better, and we all know that's happening. <laughs> okay. Now follow me here. Although the millennium is a subject of interest to many, it's not the subject of this book. I mention it only to point out that our beliefs about the millennium need not affect our view of the new earth. Regardless of when the old earth ends, now catch this, the central fact is that the new earth will begin. The Bible is emphatic that God's ultimate kingdom and our final home will not be on the old earth, but on the new earth. 
where at last God's original design will be fulfilled and enjoyed forever, not just for a thousand years. What we just read is going to take place. And we can have all these different discussions of the millennium, but it's going to take place, and it's not going to end at the end of the millennium. It's going to keep going. It's, it's forever. Um, my point is this. That area that is going to be teeming with fish and wildlife and trees, and, and just imagine gardens that are, I mean, you can't even think of. Uh, these leaves, I mean, it's just going to be spectacular, this river, this living water. That's a desert now. It's just a flat-out desert. Uh, that was a place of uh, temptation. It's going to be a t place of tremendous triumph. Why? Because of the providence of God. Uh, you know what, guys? We have tremendous hope. Because this life that we're living right now is not all there is. Most of us in this room, depending on your age, most of us think we've got another five years, 10 years, 20 years. Just looking around, I'd say most of us, most of us, just looking at the age group, most of us think, and here, when you think about it, most of us think we've got at least 20 years. Some of you guys are younger, you think you, I mean, you're planning on 40, 50 years, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that's going to come to an end. Um, we should have tremendous hope. Why should we have tremendous hope? Because of the providence of God. We see God sustaining us. We see God taking care of us. We see God providing for us before the new earth and before the new heavens ever arrive. We see the goodness of God. Sometimes we think our lives are out of control. Sometimes we experience great loss. Sometimes things are taken away. Sometimes we get devastated and we get blindsided and our hopes and dreams get broken. But the great thing about the providence of God is that the hand of God is always upon us and everything that happens in our life is ultimately for our good. It's Romans 8, 28. And we know. It doesn't say and we guess. It says and we know that God causes what? All things. All right, let's stop for a minute. Real quick, stop and think about the five greatest things that have ever happened to you. Just real quick. Everybody's had them. Some great things. We don't have any trouble saying, thank you, Lord, do we? Those came from your hand. All right, now, think about the five worst things that have ever come into your life. Usually number one's really big. And then others start coming in underneath it. Okay, you got the five best things? You got the five worst things? I was reading again yesterday Thomas Watson's book, All Things for Good, written in the 1700s. No, 1600s. His first chapter, which is about four pages long, simply is titled, the best things work for the godly. Okay, I can buy that. Chapter 2 is, which is 16 pages long, approximately, four times. The worst things work for the godly. What does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This isn't true for everybody. It's only if you've been called. It's only if you're a follower of Christ. If you love him and you're pursuing him. Not that you're without sin, because none of us are. That he's your desire. You want to please him. You want to know him. And I mean, why would you be here tonight if you didn't want to know him? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what's going to happen all the way through our lives at different times, we're going to see the providence of God as he moves us to this thing called eternity and called heaven, where one day he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth, and the earth is going to be restored to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. And it's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be phenomenal. Now, okay. Last Thursday night, 
I thought the Mavs were playing last Thursday night. They weren't. But all kind of all day long, I kind of been thinking, oh, that'd be great. Watch that game tonight. And uh, uh, after dinner, I start checking out the, and there's no, and they're not playing. And it kind of, I mean, it really kind of screwed me up for the whole night because I kind of focused around it. And uh, and I and and it kind of threw me. And and Mary had her friend coming over. They do their little prayer group thing. And I thought, well, I thought what. And I thought, you know what? I'll just go down to Barnes and Noble. I need to go find some books. So I got in the car and I started to head down to Barnes and Noble. But I couldn't decide, do I go to Louisville or do I go to Denton? Because it's the same from my house. And I'm thinking, and I'd just been to Barnes and Noble, Louisville the day before. I thought I'll go to Denton, but then I thought they're doing construction. I, no, I'll go, okay, I'll go to Louisville. So I just go to Louisville. So I go down there and I get, I'm sitting, I found a chair. You know, one of the nice ones, the soft ones. And I'm reading Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> I am. Because my son Josh said, Dad, you ought to reread that. There's some good stuff in there. I said, okay. So I got Gulliver. I'm sitting there reading Gulliver's Travels. I'm sitting there for about 20 minutes. And I'm just, you know, just, and my cell phone goes off and it kind of hacked me off. Because I was really enjoying myself. And I look and it's Mary. And she said, are you still at Barnes & Noble? And I said, yeah. She said, Lisa was just telling me about this great book. Uh, can you, while you're there, can you go over and just see if they have it? And I said, sure. So she gave me the title. Before I forgot it, I thought I'd just go right over here to the desk. So I walk over to the desk, and I, you know, there's a gal there, and there's two computers, there's two ladies. And I said, I'm looking for this book. And, you know, she types it in. And she said, well, we don't have it, but they have it in Denton. <laughs> and I said, okay. And there's this... Uh, and there's another gal standing next to me who's obviously waiting for a book. They're checking. Someone's on the phone. And she laughs and she said, I think my book's in Denton too. And I said, well, that's the way it works. Huh? And yeah, about in probably mid-20s or so, late-20s. And, and, uh, and the, my gal says, let me call and make sure they have it. I said, because I'll, I'll go get it. You know, There's no game tonight. What else am I going to do? I'll, I'll go get the book. And she's on the phone. And the gal next to me says, yeah, that's funny. My book was in Denton too. And I said, oh, yeah. And she said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find this book. I'm all excited, this book on heaven. I said, really? And she said, yeah, this guy died. He didn't die. This guy went to heaven, and he was there 90 minutes. And Jesus showed him all this stuff, and this book is all about what heaven's going to be like. And I'm really excited about that because this is all brand new to me. And she said, do you know any good books on heaven? And I'm just kind of looking at her because she doesn't know me from Adam. She just, and she's telling me, and she goes, do you know any good books on heaven? It was kind of like a Twilight Zone thing. And I said, well, uh, I actually do. In fact, I just saw the best book I think ever written on heaven back on the shelf. A friend of mine named Randy Alcorn wrote it. And I'll show it to you. She said, no kidding. I said, no kidding. I said, can I show it to you? She goes, yeah. And we walk back there, and we walk back in the Christian inspiration section, and I look, and there's Heaven by Andy Alcorn. I pull it down. I said, this is the book. She says, well, what does he say in there? How, I mean, how do you know it's good? I said, well, I've read it twice. And this guy used to be an atheist, but he came to the Lord, and he didn't have a Christian background, and he was so fascinated by Heaven, he's been studying it for 35 years. And everything he says about Heaven, he'll give you what the Bible says. He'll give you the Scripture. And when he's speculating some, he'll tell you he's speculating. So you can look up the scriptures for yourself. That's why this is such a good book. She said, well, that other book really sounded really good. I said, can I tell you something? It's not. <laughs> and she said, it isn't? I said, no. She said, have you read it? I said, no, I don't need to read it. Because, and I turned, and there was a whole section of Bibles. I, and I pulled down a Bible. I said, because in 2 Corinthians 12, can I show this to you? She said, yeah. I said, you know Paul, the Apostle Paul? She goes, yeah. I said, he actually went to heaven. She said, no kidding. I said, yeah. <laughs> you see right here in 2 Corinthians 12? And he said he was caught up into the third heaven. And then note this. You see right there? It says, and I saw things which a man is not permitted to speak. I said, now we know Paul went to heaven. This other guy we're not sure about. But here's the question. If we know Paul went, yet he can't tell us what he saw, 
you could see the light bulb go off in our eye. Then why can this guy tell us what he saw? <laughs> she goes, that's really wild. I said, it's, it is wild, isn't it? See, we know Paul went to heaven. She said, well, how do you know all this stuff? <laughs> I said, she said, what do you do? And I said, well, I, um, I write books too. And I turned and I said, in fact, I pulled point down off the shelf. I said, there's a book I wrote. She goes, that's your picture on I said, yeah. This is wild. We're just standing there in Barnes and Noble. She says, you write these books? And I said, yeah. She said, you're a pastor? And I said, ah, sort of. Yeah, I'd speak. And, you know, and she goes, I said, I mostly do a lot of stuff with men. She goes, that's really wild. And I said, yeah, I mean, isn't that something? She goes, you know, the other, and she said, I'm all new at this. This is all kind of new to me. And I said, well, that's great. She said, but I'm really hungry. And I said, well, you go in the church somewhere? She goes, oh, yeah, I'm going over to the village. I said, oh, that's good. I said, my boys go to the village. It's a church in Highland Village. It used to be called First Baptist of Highland Village. Now they just call it the village. And a guy named Matt Chandler, who's 31, is the pastor over there. And three years ago, they barely had 200. Now they're running over 3,000. Because Matt's a young Swindoll for his generation. He lays it out. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I know about the village. She goes, oh, that's a great church. I said, Matt's a great He's, You stick with Matt. He'll teach you the Bible. She goes, oh, that's great. She said, you know the other thing? I really, I really want to one day, now I want to get married and find the right guy and just, you know, do things right. She said, but I'm not sure what to look for. You know, husband, you know any books that talk about what kind of marriage you're supposed to have? And I said, well, you know, I actually just finished a book called How to Ruin Your Life by 40. And in there I have two chapters on what to look for in a marriage partner. She says, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not. And I said, it won't be out until August, but my son helped me write it. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'd be happy to, I'll just shoot you the two chapters. She said, really? And I said, yeah. She just, and she said, this is unbelievable. <laughs> was she what? No, she wasn't. She wasn't. But you know what? I'll tell you what she was. She was thrilled. She was thrilled. And there was just joy coming out of her. And she said, this is amazing. I said, you know what this is? This is what you call the providence of God. Is it not what you call the providence of God? Yeah. You see? And doesn't that bring you joy, just hearing that story? See, God gives us glimpses on our way to perpetual joy. One day, there's going to be fish where there ain't no fish. <laughs> One day, there's going to be a river full of living water, and it's the greatest river that you will ever see in your whole life. It's not there now, but it's going to be there. And on our way there, you know what? His providential hand is going to give us what we need. We're going to see glimpses of that providence when we need to see it to be encouraged because we lose hope and we lose perspective and we get worn down and we think things are out of control and they're not. Right? The providence of God brings joy, doesn't it? Don't you love this stuff? I love it to death. It's the greatest stuff in all the world. Okay. It's better than basketball. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your greatness. We are just amazed. We stand amazed in the presence. We're just, we're just, uh, we're, we're speechless. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. That's us. We can't even fathom. Those of us who are hurting, those of us who are wounded, we're not going to be wounded anymore. It's going to be over. All that's going to be gone, finished. It's going to be unbelievable. Thank you for glimpses of providence in our lives as we walk through life. 
you let us know from time to time. We look backwards and we see that hand all over our lives. That encourages us as we continue to move forward. I pray for every guy over this summer. We'll grow in our faith. We won't get sloppy. I pray that we'll watch our hearts, that we'll guard our hearts, we'll guard our eyes, we'll watch our spiritual disciplines, we'll stay close to Christ, and we'll stay close to the Scriptures. Don't let us compromise. Don't let us become liars. Help us, Lord, to develop an even greater fear of offending you. We would ask that you do the work that needs to be done in our lives over these summer months. And if you so will, we'll come back together in September. Some of us may not be here in September. Probably guys who are thinking they will be here in September. Could be me. Could be somebody else. We don't know. We don't need to know. We know you. That's all we need to know. We commit ourselves to you tonight in Jesus' name.